Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Paris, and in particular the Prince de Gaulle Hotel right here. I first came to Paris when I was 12 years old. I flew Pan Am to Orly. The plane, uh, there was an emergency on the ground. We had to circle in the air. I threw up. That was my very first jet experience, and then I had the best time ever. I still have the ugliest little metal Eiffel Tower souvenir I got when I when I was 12 years old still I still have it today and um, and I remember my mother had booked the trip through a travel agent and um, and our our itinerary was was typewritten on onion skin paper and uh, and we followed it to the max and we we had we had such a great time and later this year I think I'm going to actually I have that itinerary I'm going to repeat it I'm going to repeat it many many years later Uh, my next guest contributor to NPR the New York Times Jake Sigarano, did I get it right? I C- did. Siganaro. Siganaro. You said, yes. You know what? I tried. I really tried, Jake. This much we know. He's from Texas. That's right. And an expat. How long have you lived here? I've lived here for five years now, Peter. And reporting for all these different organizations. Yes. 
What about it brought you to Paris? What about the city? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I found that Americans fetishize Paris. Everyone has this dream of coming to Paris, and I never had that dream. So the first time I came was in 2010. You were forced to come? I was forced to come. No, I came of my own volition, but I came in 2010 to visit a friend who was living here at the time, and a week visit turned into several months. Uh, and then. Well, what was the turning point for you? Well, I think once I arrived and started meeting people and seeing what the city was all about is what made me so passionate about this city and really fall in love with it. And I, I suddenly got it. And then I started reading the literature, of course, the greats, Fitzgerald and Hemingway and their experiences. And then I understood what this American uh, ideal of Paris was and why people were so attracted to the city. Now, of course, you've seen the movie Midnight in Paris how many times? Uh, just once. Okay. But what was interesting about that movie was when they were talking about the good old days and you went and found out that they weren't so good in that when they were old. Everybody has that sort of a sentimental recollection or, or, or perception of, of the past. Right, the nostalgia of it. That's right. I mean, I think there's a lot of nostalgia involved in Paris. People come here looking for that. But I, what's great is that they come and they can find that, but then they create their, these new experiences that, uh, that give them even more love for Paris beyond that nostalgia. Now, the very first time you came, you went to the Louvre, didn't you? No. Can you believe I never, I didn't even go to the Louvre until I actually moved here in 2012. So I had never been to the Louvre until I actually was living here. And did you take a selfie view in front of the uh, I Am Pay statue? I did not. Selfies <laughs> weren't such a thing uh, five years ago. Thank God. <laughs> exactly. For me, I mean, I love Musée d'Orsay. I like it better than the Louvre uh, just because of the light. Well, you know what I like better than the Musée d'Orsay? Oh, come on, one up is, me now. Come yes, on. is the Lingerie, which is the little sister museum of the Musée d'Orsay. I like to think of it as where all of the paintings that the Musée d'Orsay thinks aren't good enough to go into the main <laughs> museum get to hang out. And so you also have these fabulous paintings, murals uh, of Monet, his water lily cycle. So you have these two oval rooms that are just magnificent and breathtaking. All right, so let's now that you've opened that door, give me a museum... That's neither of those. That's your little secret museum. Uh, my little secret museum. It's not so much of a secret, but I will tell you that the Rodin Museum is absolutely fabulous. It was just renovated last year, and it is one of the most beautiful museums and beautiful spaces here in Paris. And how can you resist a place where the artist actually lived and worked and now serves as the, the church of his, of his work? I mean, there's a lot of history there. Absolutely. Uh, and also, just a couple of weeks ago, a new museum opened in honor of Camille Claudel, who was Rodin's lover. And so you have that. All right, now we're talking. Okay. Yes, it gets very scandalous. Uh, so Camille Claudel was Rodin's lover, and she lived in his shadow for a very long time, but she was never really recognized in her own time as an artist of brilliance that she was. But now the French state is actually giving her national recognition as an important state treasure. When you got here for the first time, and then you had that experience, was it the food? Was it the art? Was it the music? Was it the history? It's a combination of all of those things, but what stood out to me the most were the people that I were meeting, that I was meeting, uh, just the hospitality and, you know... This Which is very... went against the stereotype. Absolutely. I love when people come to Paris and say, oh, the French were so much nicer than I expected. Well, yes, you know, you have this false idea in your head about the French, but... It's very cliche to say, but the French do have a joie de vivre that, that is just undeniable. I will say you this, and I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I've been coming since I'm 12. I've never had a bad experience. Um, 
the only but I've seen other people have bad experiences, and that's because of their attitude, not the French. That's right, and I think people come here with a lot of expectations uh, that sh- that automatically color what their experience is going to be. And what I suggest is for people to come with an open mind, an open heart, and of course a few words of French to uh, to butter up our French comrades. Like où est le bain? Où est la toilette? Yeah. Yes, where are the toilets? That's very important. <laughs> Not necessarily the public toilets. Correct, no. You, you, you don't want we to do that. stay away from those. No. no. We're talking with Jake Siganero. Siganero. I'm going to get All this right. right on the third yes, time. Third time's a charm. Okay. Yep. Siganero. Perfect. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Contributor to NPR and the New York Times, and now an expat living here in Paris for the last, what, five years? Five years. Yeah. Now that you're here, I'm going to take a wild guess. All your friends are visiting you. They're all showing up. No, you know, that's what's interesting. They don't show up. People do show up, but as you were just discussing earlier, people are reluctant to go to places after terror attacks. And so my closest friend from high school actually didn't come visit until just a month ago because he and his wife were a little bit leery of danger. And did he survive? He survived. And I almost had to throw him into the Seine River because we were walking along and they had just seen Notre Dame. And he said, wow, if I had known Paris was this beautiful, we would have been here a lot sooner. And I could have hit him right there. You should have hit him right there. I should have. But I'm nicer than that. But I'll go one step further because, you know, the worst four letter word that starts with F when it comes to travel is fear. Yes. And Every time I've come to Paris in the last three years, I get emails from all my friends saying, be safe. Have they been on the San Diego freeway? I mean, I'm not worried about being in Paris, unless if I'm not looking when I'm crossing the street, you know, because we understand that everybody in Paris drives like the gumball rally. But forgetting (laughs) that, do you feel unsafe here? I don't feel unsafe. Uh, Sadly, terrorism has become more of a habit here, uh, or we've become more habituated to it. But we can't be afraid. Otherwise, the terrorists win. So we have to keep living our lives. If we, if we didn't go anywhere that, where there was attack, an attack or danger, we wouldn't travel at all. And you do travel. The French travel. Absolutely. Yeah. They travel around France. They go to Europe. It's absolutely. You have to keep moving. I mean, when you had the shooting in April uh, where the, the policeman was killed and two others were wounded and they closed the Champs-Élysées for one night on a Thursday night, by Friday, I mean, I'm not trying to be insensitive. Obviously, it was a tragedy and, and people lost their, at least one person lost their life. Actually, two, if you include the terrorists. It was back to business as usual. Right. I was walking there just that weekend and it was packed with people. There were people out. They were playing music. They were shopping. It was life returning to normal. Or is the terrorism normal? I don't want to say that it's normal because it's not normal. Uh, of course, we don't want this at all, but right. it's something, it's, it's the reality that we live in and that you have to deal with. Well, the other reality that you deal with are some of the more interesting characters here living in Paris who don't show up at the guidebooks or, 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 the, or the brochures. Tell me about the Rembrandt guy. So yes, uh, Tom, Mr. Tom Kaplan, he is a, he's been an anonymous Rembrandt collector since 2002. In fact, he has the largest private collection of Rembrandts in the world. 
and he no one knew that he had this collection until recently because he went public with that putting on putting on display some of those works at the Louvre Museum. I mean they were exhibiting his his collection. He loaned it. Yes, he loaned these works. In fact, he also donated one of the paintings, not a Rembrandt, but a bowl to the Louvre Museum. Okay, stupid question. When you say you've got the largest private collection of Rembrandts in the world, how many paintings are we talking about? More than 200. But not all of those are Rembrandts. One of them is a Murray Rembrandt, one's a Helen Rembrandt. <laughs> no, no <laughs> not exactly. Well, but the other thing is that he's never lived with any of these works either. I mean, there is also the issue of where do you hang a Rembrandt in your house? It's a little bit tacky, in my opinion. But uh, he's been loaning these paintings to okay, institutions let's go back all over. Where, yes. Is this the first time he's ever exhibited them? No, he's been loaning these paintings uh, all over the world to all of these institutions. So he, that, well, he keeps them in a warehouse and then, and then loans them out? Actually, he says that there is never a painting that's not in an institution at any given moment because they are so in demand. In fact, when he first started collecting Rembrandts, uh, which has been a childhood passion since he was six years old, he said that his goal was to take these paintings out of private hands where people weren't seeing them and put them into the public so that people could, uh, could enjoy them. Wild. And, and so you, how did you find him? Uh, so I found him because I saw that this uh, show was coming up at the Louvre about the, the Dutch masters. And so I started inquiring about where the paintings were coming from and uh, the press representatives started talking to me about Mr. Kaplan's story and said that he was ready to go public. And there you go. There you go. Has he changed since your story ran about this guy? Oh, in what way? Has so? he gone more public? Is he? Is he? I mean, what? absolutely. He is going. He's going all out. He is putting his name out there. He wants to make sure that as many people as possible see these paintings. And in fact, this show is going to travel around the world to China, to the Middle East, I believe, in the Gulf. Uh, and then eventually to the U.S. Wow. So when your friends finally showed up after all those years, where did you take them? Well, I only had about 36 hours to show them the best time in Paris. So I took them to Montmartre, of course, for, it wasn't a French meal, but we had Italian, and then we walked up to, uh, <laughs> yes. Really? Well, you can only have, I had to maximize their European experience while they were here. Because so this was we, it. Yes, exactly, for them. So we, uh, we did have French food. I took them to a wine bar. I took them to Montmartre. We walked around the Marais. We walked along the Seine. Notre Dame. Notre Dame, as I mentioned earlier. Yes, absolutely. Catacombs? No catacombs. No time for the catacombs. Too bad. <laughs> I think right. we fit in quite a bit for 36 hours. Hey, by the way, have they finally taken all the locks off the bridges? Uh, they did, and they started replacing them. Uh, there are some bridges that still have the locks, but they've let, actually let put up glass to, panels. Let me, let me explain. I love the idea that... You came to Paris with your significant other. You either bought the lock and a key at a hardware store in the United States or anywhere else in Paris. And then you, you would, hopefully with indelible magic marker, you would write your initials or, or a message about your love for each other and lock it on the, on the fence on the bridge and throw the key in the river. I hate the idea. <laughs> well, okay. I think it's cheesy. Really? Yes. Okay. Whatever happened to all those locks? Uh, they, well... Part of the bridge actually fell into the Seine, the, the railing. Because of the, so, ra the weight of all the yeah, locks. Yeah, the weight of all the locks. So number one, it's a danger <laughs> is one reason why I'm, I'm against this. But the other reason is I think it's an eyesore. The idea is nice, but the actual physical appearance of it is not great. All right, so maybe it's just a wall, a special commemorative wall. I think that'd work. Okay. Yeah. All right, good. So they got rid of the locks. They got rid of the locks. Now, now how do you get rid of the locks? Did you, you know, erect a, a railing on the, on, on the bridge that can't be 
fashioned with anything? Yeah, so they shut down the bridge. They took out all of the wiring that had the locks on it. And then they actually put up plexiglass panels. I believe it's plexiglass, but it's clear panels uh, that you can't put anything on. Of course, they're, they'll tag it. Now they'll they're tag, it, tag they'll it. tag it. They'll scratch it up. But they try to keep that pretty clean as well now. Where do you go to hang out for either breakfast, lunch, or dinner? That's not in the guidebook. That's not in the brochures. My own neighborhood. Where else? Tell me. So, all right. I live in the 19th, uh, which is in the northeast of Paris. And it's on a part of the canal that is not so popular with tourists. It's not the Canal Saint-Martin, but it's the Canal Ourc. And so there are a lot of shops, a lot of restaurants that are opening up there. Okay, breakfast? Where do you go for breakfast? Breakfast. There's this great place called Café Dizneuf, and it's uh, Café 19. And it's actually a German coffee house run by a Canadian. Of course. Yes, but they have delicious coffee. Me, I love coffee, but I'm not a fan of the typical French coffee. I prefer Italian-style coffee. And these guys do Italian-style espresso. And they have the most wonderful baked goods. It always smells so good in there because they're always cooking something in the oven. Okay, so we've taken care of breakfast, lunch. Lunch. I love this restaurant called Mademoiselle in the Marais. And they... They do French food, but with a little bit of a contemporary twist. So you'll get some burrata in there, or you'll get uh, French-style egg rolls. Uh, It's delicious, and the staff there is very nice. And last but not least, of course, dinner. Oh, dinner. This is a hard one. I would have to say, oh my God, where do I go for dinner? There's a great place in the 18th called Aubancoin, and it is packed with locals, and it's maybe the best duck I've ever had in Paris. Okay, we've done it. All right. If you are continuing on to another southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. So many folks in America, France is their number one destination they want to go to. And I always argue the reason for that is that they're all failed art history majors. They study the painting in school. They figure they better go over and see it once. And they stand in line for 11 hours at the Louvre and come back and go, it's so small. Well, they do that. I can't believe how many people do that. They still do it. But if you're an evolved traveler and you still want to go to France, my next guest might be able to help you in a much more genuine and authentic way. Her name is Emily Thiebaud. She has written an amazing book called The France Just For You. Because it's a, it's a great tour guide, but it's a different way to see France. And I think it's really up close and personal because you're outside of Paris. Yes, you may land in Paris, but then you're going to go out. And Emily, where are you going out? I go out to Normandy, to the Loire Valley, the Castles Country. I go to Provence, to the Riviera, Dordogne, Bordeaux region, many regions like but you're doing it in a very small way, in, in terms of, of, of a more intimate way. Yes, I try to have my travelers see France through my eyes. So my husband and I have traveled a lot, and we figured out that sometimes you kind of miss a country when you know you you don't get to interact with locals. So what what we try I c- to I do? I couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what we do is have our travelers start premium bed and breakfast so they get to meet with French people and interact with them. Moreover, our host can speak some English so they get they don't have the language barrier and can really 
get to understand and feel the French culture. Plus, they're right there in the middle of the community. Yes, definitely. So it's one thing to say you're staying at a French B&B, but then what you do is much more than that. Yeah, because we craft their daily suggested itineraries for each couple traveling with us. They tell us what they like and what they dislike. And based on that, we plan every day of their trip. They have no commitments, much one or two during the week, but the rest of the time they're free, but they know where to go, what to do, where to have lunch or dinner. They have many suggestions. And this we really craft based on our travelers' wishes and expectations. I would think that, you know, if I were going to be coming to you, I would tell you, I just don't want to visit a winery. I'd like to help pick the grapes. Or I don't want to just be in the kitchen. I want to make the crepes. (laughs) Can I do that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've, you know, I've... I explore France all the time and find new people to meet and new activities for my travelers. So definitely, for instance, like cooking class. You took this example. I don't like my travelers to be at a cooking class, which is 12 students and one chef that nobody wants to address to. Uh, I take my travelers to a chef who is at home and have them welcome them in his own home. So have it's them really cook one in the afternoon. It's, it's one-on-one. Yeah. yeah, and enjoy dinner toge- all together at night. So it's the type of experience I'm looking for. It's difficult to find in Paris. And as you said, in Provence or in Normandy, I can definitely do that. I can't think of something... I, I can think of something less desirable when you think about it than being stuck on a bus, right? So really, it's it's one-on-one, it's hands-on, it's it's you're, you're immersing yourself. Yeah, and the thing is, as my travelers are driving the car, uh, automatic car, because I know that it's complicated to ah. have stick shift to Americans, so they have automatic cars, they have all GPS coordinates, even for the parking lots, so they know in every town they will arrive, they know where to park. And so you understand the geographic <laughs> ignorance of Americans, don't you? Yeah, I've lived in the U.S. Oh, okay, <laughs> fine, you're double-checking. Okay. But that's helpful. Yes, I try, you know, to put myself in my traveler's shoes and make their life more comfortable. So when they tell you what they want or what they're interested in, how creative can you get? I mean, I mean, what would you say is a, a wild example of what you personally crafted for one for one for group? one couple? Yeah. For instance, I had a couple. Their last name was the name of a valet in the Pyrenees. And they wanted to go back to their ancestors. So I, you know, organized their whole journey so they could go back to this special valley, take a private guided tour, and we could find, you know, graveyards and any information, you know, for them to make their trip very, very special. So this is something we often do because many Americans come from the old Europe. And uh, those who have information about their ancestors are happy to go back to a little town, which is not a, a touristy place. But, you know, Even if better. we can yeah, if we can put it in the middle of their trip, they can enjoy, you know, well-famous places, but also get to see where their ancestors came from. Is it just couples or could it be families? Yeah, we have some families with mostly couples, uh, very often two couples traveling together. And, uh, and they still talk to each other at the end of the trip? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I found that, that American people like to, to travel to couples together. Yes. Yeah. Now, please tell me nobody's asking you to go to McDonald's. No, and I never recommend it. Nobody ever asked? No. 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 Some some ah, of my travels, ah. I have to admit, in Dordogne, you know, where we eat a lot of foie gras and duck confit and stuff like that. At the end of the week, sometimes my travelers tell me that it's hard for them to digest out of point because it's so different from enough what you foie gras. eat in the US. It's enough foie gras. <laughs> I understand. What would be the best culinary experience you put together for them? Culinary to me, it's really getting to a local person at his or her house and cook with him or her, you know, all afternoon long. I can craft any type of dish this person wants to make or any allergy they have. We work around that and, you know, get to see how French people cook because I know for American people, it's important. gastronomy is important and they want to discover it while in France. So The most important thing is 
is that the book that you do, yeah. it's, a, it's a real book just for one couple. Yes, definitely. And it's, it's a couple of hundred pages. Yeah, it's between 300 and 400 pages, yes. Just for one couple? Yes. Wow. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. One of my questions, of course, every time I go to a hotel, especially in Paris, is the history of that hotel. And uh, this hotel certainly has a history. And joining me now, the man who knows more about it than anybody because he's doing the book on it, uh, Andreas Augustine, how are you, sir? I'm fine, Peter. So, every, I mean, there's a lot of new hotels opening in Paris, some new builds as well. But this hotel goes back how many years? Uh, it's going to be 90 years next year. So there's a lot of history. Yep, absolutely. What screams out to you that most guests who would stay here don't know about the hotel, about the history? Because, you know, people check in, they know the brand, they know they're going to get a great room, but they don't really have a sense. Of the meaning of yeah. the name. Yeah, which is? Prince de Galles. And that means Prince of Wales. And that hints... Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that, yes. So I think that's probably... <laughs> I mean, I, I could tell you something that would be embarrassing for me as an American. A lot of my friends thinking I'm staying at the Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> yes. I mean, they, right? Am I, uh, yeah. so, Charles de Gaulle, so, Prince de Galles. Prince, Prince, Prince of Wales. And, and why was it named that? Well, it was named because the person who built it was naming it after the Prince of Wales in respect for the British crown and in hope that the Prince of Wales, Edward, would stay here. And did he? Well, I'm not <laughs> sure if I can release this already. I can only tell you that Churchill stayed here, Chamberlain stayed here. No, he did never stay here. Funny enough. Yeah. Wow. But the name stayed here. The name stayed. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It is the Georges Cinq, the street of the English kings, and that's the Avenue Georges Cinq, and that's where we are, right in the middle of it. Exactly. So other than Churchill and Chamberlain, who else has stayed here? Um, I don't want you to wait for my book, but in a way, yes, I do. <laughs> but I can give you a few stories. Okay. Um, what I like to tell is the story about Marlene Dietrich. I guess everybody is familiar with her. Oh, yeah. So she stayed here before the war, before the Second World War. And in 1939, she more or less escaped Germany and decided to moved to America. She became American, as you probably know, and she left the Prince de Galles in a hurry, and she came back in an American uniform five years later, in 1944, in search for seven suitcases which she had left in 1939. Please tell me they were here. Well, unfortunately not, because they had been moved to Germany and the content had been sold or given to poor people. Wow. The German army had 
taking place here. They had their uh, commander here in this hotel. Although when you think about it, I mean, what, what possessed her to think that leaving seven suitcases before World War II would be, they would be, you know, they would be taken wonderful care of and they'd be waiting for her? Well, I can tell you why, because usually that's a standard in a super-class hotel like this Unless one. war breaks out. Well, unless war breaks out and the wrong people move in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The design of the hotel, the architecture of the hotel, the facade of the hotel, when it was closed in 2011, they had to make sure that when they reopened it two years later, that they didn't lose the essence of the hotel. You cannot lose the essence of the facade, but the content is, of course, important. Not to mention that the people who run it are actually the most important content of every hotel in the world. But the architect who actually built it was a not very well-known person called André-Louis Arfitson. And Mr. Arfitson didn't really make a big name for himself, but in one respect he did, because he built the first real art deco facade here in Paris. The interesting thing to note is that he garnished the hotel with a lot of elements which you find in art deco. And interesting enough, next door, another hotel had been built exactly at the same time. And they didn't use any of these elements. So when you go into the courtyard of the Prince de Galles, you see a lot of Art Deco elements gracing the facade and the interior courtyard. And nothing like that is in the surrounding, in the, in the architecture to be found. There you go, keep that going. This is flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendants on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You gotta I try pay to do plastic. this every time if we do a show from a hotel because most Americans are intimidated by my next guest. Not her particularly, but by the title. Uh, I remember when I first came to Paris, I was 12 years old, uh, and my mother walked into the hotel with me, and she took me by the hand and pointed to the concierge desk and said, don't ask them anything. Because in those days, the concierge was a separate entity. It was like a separate fiefdom of the hotel. And at the end of your stay, you got a separate bill from the concierge in addition to the bill from the hotel. And my mother was terrified that if I just asked what time it was, there'd be a bill. Um, then there's the misperception of what concierges do. It goes so much more beyond just theater tickets and, and, uh, and booking flights. And then the bottom line is they actually are, in the old school, a walking Rolodex. In the new school, a walking database. And they know everything. So with that as the introduction, Marie Lestere, who is the chef, chief concierge of the Prince de Gaulle, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, you heard my introduction. I'm assuming there are still Americans who are intimidated by the idea of a concierge. Well, if it is the case, I don't really see it. I You're mean, lucky, um, yeah. <laughs> um, the the fact also that we are, I mean, we are really at the uh, what I would call the core center of the hotel. So we're in the lobby of the hotel. We're kind of their first, you know, contact. Uh, whether it is a us at the concierge, but also the rest of my team, the doormen, the bellboys. So it's all, you know, we're here to welcome them. So I hope we're not too scary for them. Well, <laughs> see, I go back, I go beyond the idea that you're here to welcome those uh, or them. You're also here to save the day. 
because you you can either pull the rabbit out of the hat and do the magic when something goes wrong, or you get a request that's last minute, and you get a lot of those, I'm sure, right? So I guess my question is, in terms of those kinds of requests, uh, you know, how many guests have come up to say, I need to charter a 747 in an hour, can you get it for me? And you have to, you go out and get it for them. I mean, it's one of the, it's not just I just want to go to see a play tonight. So, what kind of interesting, challenging requests are you getting these days? Well, um, there's a little bit of everything, you know. Given that every single person is different, every single guest is obviously different as well. Um, even for me, the smallest of requests is an interesting one even though they might not be the greatest challenge. But uh, it's true that, like, charter a private jet, um, as long as it's humanly feasible, we'll do it. You know, humanly feasible and legal, of course. Okay, so give me the most most challenging legal request you've had. Me personally, or can I maybe use um, a request that my team has? Sure, go ahead. Um, My assistant, Jean-Christophe, uh, who's worked at the Prince de Galles for more than 25 years, um, had that request from a, a former guest at the hotel. Um, he was attending a birthday party um, at a, for a private function on Place Vendôme. And uh, the theme of the party was uh, black and white. And it was an original, you know, um, person, a one-of-a-kind, I would say. And um, he said, well, find me an idea for that party. You know, I want to really stand out. And um, let's say he did. Um, There were two little dwarf goats, a black one and a white one. And he was just like, he had the, Jean-Christophe had them, he found them in the countryside near Chartres or somewhere like that. And just keep in mind, the request was placed at 11 a.m. for 6 p.m. deadline. And so the guest arrived on Place Vendôme, coming out of his limo, and he had with two leash the two little dwarf goats, and he made his entrance. And he was like, the it was the most amazing thing they had seen at the party. And, I mean, the, the whole point is there. It's just like, that's exactly what the guest wanted, to stand out. And he did. Okay, so I have one obvious question that begs to be asked what happened to the goats well actually that's the funny part are they of it. now in a suite at the hotel or? yeah of yeah. course they yeah. live with us yeah, yeah. <laughs> um no um the, the funny part is the 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 owner of the goats said well no i don't want to rent them so you have to buy them <laughs> and jean-christophe said well your price is ours so the the, the guest boat the, the goats. The guests bought the goats. Absolutely. But then after the evening, he didn't want them anymore. I hate when that happens. But yeah. then they were returned to their previous owners. He just gave them back. Yeah. And they took them. Yeah, of course. Okay. But it, I mean, he didn't claim the money or anything. He just, he just paid re- it. Yeah, he returned the goats. <laughs> so they're, they're now living uh, happily near Chartres. So what you're telling me is that the, the Prince de Gaulle has an open goat policy? You, you of course, we're pet friendly. Absolutely. Even if it's a goat. <laughs> <laughs> if it fits in an elevator, then it works. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. 
2011 for massive renovations. It reopened in 2013. But before it closed, it was my secret place to go, the best lobster sandwich in Paris, without a doubt. And it reopened in 2013. And the first thing I said is, do you still have the lobster sandwich? And it was, no, we don't. They took it off the menu. But you replaced it with a different kind of lobster dish, didn't you? Certainly, you have, um, right now, you have all the signature dish of the chef, uh, Stéphanie Le Kelec, and uh, you have a different use uh, preparation. Um, with maybe a nice caviar, or uh, you have um, some egg from Ile-de-France uh, with uh, some uh, egg yolk, some uh, nice espuma of uh, green asparagus, and some morels just cooked with uh, yellow wine. Now, you, you mentioned that, uh, uh, by the way, that Cedric Mapoin, who is the, he's the chief sommelier and also the restaurant manager, so he knows the menu by heart, as you can hear this. The cool thing is you threw the caviar in, too. Yes. <laughs> So, okay, I forgive you for the lobster sandwich now. I'll go for that. Oh. What would you say, you know, because hotel restaurants are always a very interesting challenge because the traditional hotel restaurant was not exciting. The traditional hotel restaurant was, you know, meat and potatoes. And then over the last 15 to 20 years, hotels realized that you could not be an afterthought with your restaurant. You had to actually make a statement. And the chefs reflected that. The menu reflected that. Your guests were demanding it. So when you reopened the hotel in, in 2013, what did you want to make happen in La Seine, which is your prime dining restaurant? I think, first of all, the, um, you have a different way. The first uh, the fun things for me is uh, the chef, to choose a, a great chef, a very young one. Uh, the name is uh, Stéphanie Le Kelec, uh, who take um, the creation of the, the dining room, the kitchen, and uh, he, he won, she won uh, the concours Top Chef, and uh, telling for me, uh, for the hotel was a very good opportunity to make uh, to make a good uh, young chef. I think so. After uh, she's uh, um, she make a, a, a huge cuisine, very uh, creative, with uh, um, improvisation way all the time. She uh, she chose uh, some good uh, good food, and uh, she want uh, to to make certainly a, a new cuisine with the French uh, tradition uh, concept. Now, when you say French tradition concept, when I hear French tradition concept, I'm thinking heavy sauces. Yes. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right now, you have a possibility to, to make some light sauce. To do, uh, uh, but no, I, I have some a few um, ideas about that, but she likes to make some, uh, you have like sabayon, is a traditional way. Uh, she's put uh, in siphon or I make uh, something a bit more light all the time. Uh, when uh, I make some sauce, uh, it's always to have the great taste of this sauce, but without uh, butter, without olive oil, just to be a little bit uh, fresh and direct. Now, you also have a relatively uh, special wine cellar. Yes, it's uh, one of... Um, I love the wine, and <laughs> I'm a chef sommelier too, and... Uh, and uh, in, in Prince de Galles, I have a huge selection of wine uh, in Burgundy, in uh, Bordeaux, in as well in uh, Rhone Valley, and um, from wine from around the board, like Italy, Spain, and uh, Germany. What would you say is your most popular wine here? For me, for uh, the guests, I think the Burgundy wines. 
white and red, uh, and champagne. You know, when you are in certainly one of the best places like uh, Prince de Galles, uh, with a nice glass, you can start your dinner or your aperitif always with a nice glass of champagne. Now, for me, it's rosé. Rosé champagne? Absolutely. Oh, but you have here a nice Laurent Perrier rosé. I, I, I've been to the family uh, residence. Oh. I've been to their to their champagne house. It's amazing. I mean, the whole family. And the daughter who runs it. Yes, certainly. Yes, of course. Amazing. And uh, my friend Jean Christian, who who took me out there, it was it was an education for me. Yeah. So Laurent, I I know it. It's great. Oh, but, uh, it's a huge house for me. Yes. With so many different brands of champagne. Ooh, uh, in the cellar right now, you have uh, 65 different champagne, different houses. 65? Yes, you have uh, some, because you have two different ways of champagne. You have some uh, house and you have as well some vigneron. It's a winemaker, very smaller place with uh, maybe a production of uh, 40, uh, 40 up uh, 50,000 bottles each year. And if you have a house uh, champagne, he produced 600,000 or 1 million bottles. And uh, I love to work with house and uh, winemaker. Wow. All right, so 65. Yes. So you and I are going to go down there tonight and taste them all. Yes. No, we're not. Uh, <laughs> we'll look at them all. <laughs> right? Yes. Exactly. What's the one item on your menu that everybody wants? And what's the one item on your menu that you tried and nobody wanted? You have everybody wants always some wine from, um, for me, from Burgundy. Very difficult to, to add, to, to find it. It's always the wine from uh, Armand Rousseau. Certainly everybody wants to buy one bottle because it's very difficult <laughs> to get it. See, so they're and trying to buy the wine from you Yes, too. yes. Cédric Maupin, the, the chef sommelier and the manager of the restaurant La Seine, right here at the Prince de Gaulle. That music means we're out of time for the entire show. A lot of people to say thank you to. Dara Stone, our chief producer. Jeff Ryder doing the boards back in Connecticut. Alyssa Caverly doing the boards as the producer right here. Tim Hill, engineering right here. Maureen Bachetta and Isabel Vigneron right here at the Prince de Gaulle. And the entire staff of the Prince de Gaulle Hotel here in Paris. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.